your podcast, not yeah, yours, not mine. Oh, I thought we were on the on the Ian Pratt cast. Yeah, well, it's over. It's just, it's a short one. <laughs> I usually do two to three minutes with a commercial in the middle. There's a fifteen minute commercial in the middle of it. Man, you're raking um, in the cash. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading, and you're listening to the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. This week, the guest is, I consider, a good friend now, uh, the one and only Ian Pratt. Ian is a contemporary long rifle builder. I'm really thankful to have him on the show here to talk about some really interesting stuff about his process and about muzzleloading and the art beside it. I think we kind of deemed the, the topic of this episode, really the art of the long rifle. But you'll notice this isn't, uh, you know, necessarily a question and answer or an interview podcast here. This is much more casual. We're just kind of going through some of Ian's process and some of his inspirations here about the work that he's building, not necessarily how he does it, but the influences and the stories that he's trying to tell with the techniques and the processes that he uses. So, you know, maybe you'll come away from from listening to this week's episode thinking a little bit differently about muzzleloading and history and our connection to everybody that came before and got us to here. So, as always, thank you so much for listening. We'll have a link in the show notes for some of the things that we're discussing here that you can check out later. Until then, I'll catch you at the end of the show. We're back. Okay, we're back with Sorry the uh, Ian Pratt cast. <laughs> Thanks. Glad to be here. It's always always fun. At least it was last time. <laughs> I don't know if it will be this time. I should have said that. This time we're going to put the pinch on you, I think. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Man. So we, we've been talking quite a bit uh, this summer. Is you've been building guns and I've been looking at old guns and just I've had a ton of questions about things. And, um, you know, one of the things that kind of got us talking again was the the Dickert long rifle that I got a chance to look at at the Rock Island Auction Company. And and you shared yes. some really neat insights with me as to why their sights were so different uh, compared to what we have now, kind of talking about how those guns were built and how they were used every day. And that kind of launched us into then meeting up again at the CLA show and this continued conversation about the art of the long Long rifle and really kind of the muzzleloader in general, but particularly kind of an early flintlock, I think. And um, yeah, and that's what we. I wanted to kind of dive into that, and uh, and you did as well here, in kind of a, a more formal conversation. Yeah, well, first off, I just want to say some of those videos you, you've been doing uh, when you've been going out and visiting them at Rock Island, they've been great. Uh, uh, really good introduction for some some people who maybe aren't familiar with kind of the, some of the details that you're you're explaining so uh thanks for doing that yeah thank you it's it's it was neat i mean i'm in no way a professional you know there's a lot of people out there that know a lot more about those builders and their techniques um, but i'm glad it comes across especially to somebody like you as kind of an introduction perhaps for somebody that's new and and doesn't necessarily know the terminology or the history because that that's kind of what i was going for is kind of give a, a worldwide overview of some muzzleloaders that have been built over history and and get people introduced to some different things sure sure well that's that's a great and there seem to be more and more people all the time getting getting interested in, in guns and I, I you know among the people most of them that i talk to are people who want to build guns mm -hmm. and uh, uh so uh, a lot of them strain well it seems odd to me but a lot of them aren't necessarily as interested at least in the beginning uh, as interested in learning about the old guns as 
I was. Mm. And uh, it's more about learning the mechanics. They want to go shoot. They, they like the idea of owning, building a flintlock rifle. Uh, they want to, they want to understand, they want to learn how to build one more than anything else. And, you know, the, they, they recognize that it came from somewhere. You know, yeah. These things didn't just happen this year. Uh, but, uh, you know, the interest isn't there in the beginning with, with most of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm not sure why. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure either. You, know, you kind of think that the, the history might be what, what gets people into them, but that's kind of a, I, I'm, I'm making a note of that because that's, that's an interesting question to start asking and of, of people that are kind of getting into, getting, in, getting into muzzle loaders and trying to yeah. see how they get here. Well, a lot of them that I've spoken with more recently that, that are, don't have questions about gun building, how to get into it, or trying it already. They have specific questions. They've got into it for uh, different reasons uh, than a lot of us are used to mm. or accustomed to. Uh, a lot of them are um, into, we'll say, homesteading, self-reliance, that kind of thing. And the, the flintlock mechanism itself kind of appeals to them, that kind of gun uh, appeals to their style of living somehow, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's a bunch of them that, that, uh, that are into that kind of thing. Um, but really, I mean, many of them that I talk to anymore, just, just are excited about having a flintlock gun they can shoot and, and learning how to build one. So, you know, uh, the history becomes kind of, a. Um, well, I haven't been talking with many of them for long enough to see what's really going to happen, but, you know, some of them eventually start getting into the history of it, um, later, you know, Mm -hmm. do you find that they're interested in the art and the kind of the, the artful side of it? Does that go along with the building or is it more, uh, kind of the building is more of kind of a task oriented thing. And then maybe later on they get into the, the art form of it. Um, you know, I think that. Most of them, there are some that it's, it's all about the nuts and bolts of it, but I would say that most of that I talk with anyway are interested in the art of it. Uh, they recognize that, uh, uh, you know, the aesthetics that, that there are things that are going to appeal to them and things that are not, you mm-hmm. know, and, um, I like to try to help sort that. And a lot of students I've had, I've, I try to, try to get them all the time to look at, things that they like and don't like very critically and ask themselves why or why not? Hmm. Why do I like this? Why do I dislike that? And some answers you come up with might really surprise Um, It may be something as simple as a a color scheme that appeals to you. Suddenly you notice these 10 guns that you like all share that Hmm. or a particular detail. Or Sometimes it's a mood they evoke. It can be anything. Sometimes people have to think pretty hard about it. Uh, to to get to that answer but uh but yeah i'd say that that the majority of them seem to be aware of the the art in it and uh want to make that a part of their learning um you know put it into motion mm-hmm. so how did you kind of come into focusing on the on the art side of it and then how do you um i guess it's really kind of two questions in one but how do you then kind of pass that on and um share that with some of your students or just some of your friends that are are interested in building? Uh, I think for me, it was always, it was always there. Uh, When I started building guns to sell, it was very, very important to me that they were going to be used. Hmm. 
they were going to be shot. And uh, frankly, I was probably kind of a jerk about it sometimes. If I kind of sensed that somebody, you know, just in talking with them, that they know how to shoot one of these, maybe I wasn't. Hmm. And uh, yeah, <laughs> which I regret now because <laughs> over time I, I it, it's kind of funny. I always from the beginning had an appreciation of the art mm-hmm. in them uh, because that's part of who I am. But uh, somehow they were still for shooting and that was it, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, o- over time uh started meeting more and more people who appreciated them purely for the art of it that never them uh collect them uh view them like one would view a a painting that you might collect Mm -hmm. uh or or not necessarily collect their own but you know they viewed them in that way and it was a little foreign to me at first but um you know that's become a big part of I guess you'd call it my customer base mm-hmm. is, is, uh, 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 people who just appreciate the art purely, you know, and, and aren't really going to use them. So, uh, but I do have, you know, a lot of, a lot of people out there that, that do sh- uh, shoot, shoot them, hunt with them. Um, uh, and it's still always nice to hear from those people and get pictures, you yeah, know, yeah. hunting season comes around. Boy, I don't know if I answered your question. I just started thinking about. No, no, I think I think you did. <laughs> I, I felt myself starting to drift there for a second. I wonder if I'm answering Ethan's question. No, no, I'm just talking to myself right now. No, no, you're good. You're good. All right. Good. Hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> We're real casual here. This isn't uh, this isn't highbrow. This is uh, like I said. It's kind of pirate radio, but for muzzleloading here, we can. Awesome. <laughs> Kind of when we're talking about the art of the long rifle, I think you and I both kind of see things, and I'm sure we see some, see some things similarly, but then we see other things differently. How would you describe, you know, this term of of the art of the long rifle to somebody who maybe isn't hasn't thought about it or is wanting to just kind of see how you think about um, the art behind the long rifle? Well, uh, I guess. To describe my take on it, I have to describe a distinction that can be made to many people. I think the art of the long rifle, that term, would apply more to the craft, the craftsmanship in a way. Mm. I guess I'd have to talk about the kind of things that that I'm drawn to. To, to, to better explain it. I mean, if you're ready to get weird, we can get kind of weird. Let's get weird. If, you, if get you're weird. ready, I'm ready. All right. Put your weird hat on. Um, a lot of it is, for me, has, has been about human connections. Well, I, think, I think we have to start at the Big Bang. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's start right at the beginning. <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, actually, we don't. It, human connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 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 a huge part of it for me, you know the stories, uh, the stories that are there to be told, and and figuring out ways to put that back into your work, to learn ways to use that kind of thing as a tool, just like you would any other other technique. I, okay, something that's been really really fascinating me for for a while. I've been aware of it for for quite a few years, but are you are you aware of the fossilized human footprints that are in various locations across the globe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some of those. Have you? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, like been and seen them? Oh, no, no. I've seen like pictures of them, I should say. Okay. Well, the, the ones in particular that are intriguing to me are in, in uh, White Sands National Park in New Mexico. I would love to go out there, but I've never never been there. But if you, are you familiar with those at all? Let me pull um, up here. There, yeah, uh, it's it's pretty cool stuff. There's there are some some that show uh, hunters after giant sloth. There's mammoth tracks sort of crisscrossed with human tracks. Oh wow! The 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 one that really gets me is there's a trail of human footprints. If I'm remembering right, it's like a mile long, or maybe more than a mile long, like a single track uh, that they think is a. Uh, uh, they're pretty sure she was a female and she was in a hurry by the, apparently like the spacing between her steps. And, um, but every now and then there's a second set of footprints alongside hers that show up of a small child. And when those disappear, her tracks get deeper in the mud. So it's like she was picking up this child carrying for a way and then setting down, maybe too heavy, mm-hmm. you know, taking a rest kind of thing. Yeah, but she was in a hurry, like on the move, and for a mile or so. And it kind of makes you wonder, I mean, if you stop and take a breath for a second here, (laughs) uh, when you hear a story like that from that long ago, and it's a human being, obviously their world was so different from our world now they lived so different but you know you hear that story and there's like this huge void now anybody with half an inquisitive mind would probably feel this huge void that you're wanting to fill with answers and information did you get that yeah yeah honestly (laughs) like i looking at it i'll put a link in the show notes for people listening but i kind of got goosebumps Uh, and there's a there's an illustration here to go with it and i just imagine you know carrying a baby through the mud and things and, and not knowing, I mean, they didn't have, <laughs> they didn't have a flintlock, you know, at least to protect them or anything. Um, yeah. that'd just be kind of, that'd be kind of spooky. Right. Exactly. And that, that's, so, you know, we're trying to think into their world, into her world, what was happening to her, you know, where, where was she going? This was just one occurrence on one day, you know, and, uh, obviously, yeah, they lived, way differently than we do and we're trying to explain it from our context you know 21st century life uh we're we're not going to be able to ever fully explain it because we weren't there we'll Mm -hmm. never fully understand it but they at least unintentionally left us a lot of clues about what their existence was like and (laughs) i guess so if if you'll keep coming along with me now yeah <laughs> you i'm got following you like the, this afternoon like the little baby f- foot tracks in the mud man i'm right there beside you right as so long as you're jump- good as long as you're good don't let me don't let me take you somewhere you don't want to go but no no this is uh, you know i'm trying to there's a lot that goes in i know we're talking <laughs> we're talking about flintlock rifles here and muzzle loading but as far as the art of it it has to come from somewhere you mm-hmm. know and and for me, this is part of it. Yeah. I will say too, like for me, that's a, that's a big part of it too, is, I mean, even just growing up playing in the woods, you know, I always had a stick that was a, an imaginary rifle, you know, of some kind playing in the woods. And even now going on a walk or something, you know, I'll, I'll carry a walking stick or, or my, my actual flintlock now, you know, just a rifle, just to kind of step back in time and, um, you know, not pretend, but 
try to connect with those a ton of people that came before. Exactly. It's a connection. Yes. That, and that's that's a huge part of it. Uh, it it's, it's a connection to the past. Uh, connection from then to now, the mm-hmm. opposite direction. You know, it's it's time travel, damn it. We are time traveling. <laughs> Let's jump jump through time again here mm-hmm. to about 30 years ago from now. And we're listening to our favorite music at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay, you with me? I'm with you. All right. It can be whatever music you like, some of your favorite, for whatever reason, just your favorite. But for, for me... It was a piece of uh, largely improvised instrumental music. Some really, really, really like quietly intense sort of introspective stuff. And literally every time I would listen to this music, it'd stop me dead in my tracks. I'd be totally focused on it. Internal dialogue would shut down. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But yeah. And all I'd hear was what was happening in that music and just sort of allow that experience of hearing it, uh, to do what it was going to do on, on that particular day or at that particular time. It was that powerful of an art experience. I loved that music. Listen to it all the time on that particular time that I was listening to it. It suddenly dawned on me that everybody, all, all the musicians who were playing that particular music I was listening to were no longer with us. Mm. they're gone mm-hmm. some of them have been gone for for a while already and i'd listened to this stuff many many times but had I, for whatever reason i had never really considered that part of it and so they're gone but the music was alive you know it's just fresh and alive as the moving meaningful everything as the day it had been played and recorded mm-hmm. yeah and I think if we look beyond the recording process, if uh, the document that the record is, or not records, any, I mean, it was probably a cassette then at the time I was listening to it. But uh, if we look beyond the document, we'll say, mm-hmm. certainly we're hearing their knowledge of music and of their own instruments, how to make it all work within the group, all those things. But we're also hearing their personalities, their intentions. Um, But I think at the heart of it, even deeper than that, we're hearing the chemistry between people. We're hearing those connections from one human to another or within a group of people. And the recording, if anything, as a document, was a document of the creative spirit in people. And that's a thing that's undeniable. People have created art just for the sake of creating art since there have been people. Mm-hmm. So that's really what I was listening to. And that's really what was appealing to me. Uh, not necessarily the the math of it all, the music theory of it all, you know, I, I didn't listen to it on those terms. It was just, you know, pure, pure, pure sound and the creative spirit behind it. So how the hell does this <laughs> relate to building rifles? <laughs> and when is he going to start talking about it? Um, I'm in deep, man, Ethan. I'm in deep. Try, trying to unwrap part of it so people will get where I'm coming from. I feel the same way. Uh, like that's a big thing for me is, um, 
my family's always been interested in cameras and going back to the, you know, really their invention. Um, when my grandfather was very young, he was always fascinated with cameras. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, I remember him in his old age was uh, showing him like a cell phone camera and he couldn't quite wrap his head around how the phone processed the film is, is the question he asked. And, but th- that's, wow. that's kind of a side note, but that, that notion that I can go back through all of his photographs and his video cameras and I can see him and I can see his friends and the family, you know, 40, 50 years ago up into when I came around and then, you know, you know, towards the end of his days and things and being able to go back in and, and see that I, I, I know exactly what you mean about there you go listening to something or watching something and having that realization that, that person's not with us anymore, but you're still able to see them and interact with them. And for me, that was part of why I really wanted to get I Love Muzzleloading going is I, I wanted to have the opportunity to try to capture some of the personalities of people within muzzleloading and living history and the traditional craft side of all of this so that, you know, my grandkids and their great grandkids and, and everybody else down the road could see this stuff at this point in time and, and kind of experience that. It's all very, it, it kind of feels wishy-washy, you know, very artsy, but when it comes to muzzleloading, we have a long line of not knowing the people. There, there just was, there's not much media around it. I mean, like celebrities, yeah. you can go back and read tabloids, you know, from the 30s and the 40s. Oh, endless, yeah. And, but, you know, to me, muzzleloading is, was something that needed to be recorded and the people needed to be recorded. So I'm right there with you. And if, if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, these guys are crazy, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's, I think, kind of the, you have the surface level of it, which is the muzzleloaders and the accoutrements and the crafts. But as you get deeper and deeper, you get into the the personal connections that you can get in a lot of hobbies. But I think because muzzleloading is so tied to history, especially here in the United States, and it's so much slower than many of the hobbies that people experience in 2021, I think it's special in that way because we can connect with each other in more ways than I think other hobbies allow you to. Oh, fantastic. And that's great, Ethan. I'd, it's, uh, it's an admirable thing you're doing for sure. Well, uh, I'll admit, you know, it, it kind of started selfishly. I, um, my other grandfather got into muzzleloading in the thirties and, I still have, I have a video of him talking about the first muzzleloading match that he went to. And, you know, being able to go back and listen to that is, is something that I really cherish. And I really recommend anybody out there that has somebody that they, you know, are really going to miss when they go to, to sit down and talk with them some. And, and if, especially if they're older, you know, just turn on your phone's recorder app and just capture some of, some of their stories because it will be, it will be invaluable to you moving forward with your life. I, I will say that's a little side oh, note. Absolutely. But, um, is there any way that you, maybe you have already, can you post that as one of your, I mean, not necessarily like as an interview, but is there any way you could post that? Yeah, I, I probably could. You know, I, I think he might enjoy that because he was, he always oh, loved muzzleloading. Yeah. Yeah. There, uh, I mean, there's lineage in all directions with yeah. this stuff we're doing, you yeah. know, and uh, that'd be, that'd be wonderful to see or hear it even. Um, yeah. I hope you can do that sometime. We came down here to uh, 
1937, but we didn't have any, uh, any gun or anything. And uh, we uh, went up and the ladies at the church had a, had a lunch counter. And that, that counter got, uh, was, was all, uh, we got there a little after, way after noon, because we were gawking around at the people at the chute. And uh, so when we walked up to the tent, the, the lady said, I'm sorry, but all we have is one bowl of soup. And uh, so uh, we said, well, we, we take that. So. She gave us a bowl of soup and five spoons, and uh, that was all, all we had to eat down here that day. And uh, that, that was our first trip to, uh, to the, one of the shoots. And uh, when we got home, my dad said, I'm going back next year, but I'll have a gun. <laughs> and uh, the next year we did. So how does this, you know, not to, I guess, to bring us a little bit back towards the train tracks here. How does this human connection kind of connect, you know, that you were feeling with listening to this music and, and this kind of realization you had that you were, you know, feeling the creative energy of these people who had passed. Uh, how did that affect you as an artist then and bring you to where you're at now, you know, as a, as a young artist 30 years ago or a younger artist, I should say. Well, at that time, 30 years ago, I wasn't making guns yet. I've probably been doing it around 20 years now. Um, that was, that was just, uh, Oh, probably, you know, something that, something that I've carried with, well, obviously something I've carried with me ever since that, Mm -hmm. that kind of realization and that feeling. And, uh, um, you know, when I, when I make something, whatever it is, you know, if I'm making a, a rifle, for example, or, or even studying, you know, old, old guns, old objects that I'm interested in, I'm always thinking about the part of their history that involves the human connections and the creative spirit, the stories that surround all of it, uh, all of that. If you, if you take a long rifle that was built in colonial America, we'll say just uh, generally, we'll say in the mid 18th century, it was probably made with a mix of uh, American and European parts. And whoever made it likely was trained in Europe, uh, but they weren't a master. You know, they mm-hmm. were proficient at certain things, but not others. And uh, now he's doing the work on his own. He may have an apprentice working with him or he may be just on his own, but he's kind of going out on some artistic limbs, <laughs> expressing himself with some carving and engraving that maybe he's never done before or on a very limited basis. So he's developing his own style, but he's expressing his creativity, even the way he stocks his guns, you know, part of it's probably going to come from his training, but maybe he's, seeing guns that people are bringing into the shop, you know, styles he's unfamiliar with, but he likes them, you mm-hmm. know, uh, things that need repair. So that's, you know, influencing his, his style. Uh, so maybe this gun that he's built, the one that we're talking about, it sees some battles and raids and it goes out to feed the owner's family or defends the family from attacks. Uh, over time, parts of it wear out, need repaired, replaced, uh, so there are new parts on the gun now. It's starting to look different. 
maybe it fall, maybe the whole thing, you know, it, 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 the gun falls off a horse with its owner. Both of them get busted wrists. Right. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, they both have to get repaired. Uh, it, 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 the gun gets sold, traded, disappears for half a century. Um, shows up now it's living in a museum. Uh, you know, it's famous. Yeah. Um, so all these things that, you know, I just briefly described, there are human connections in all directions there. Um, you know, people that, that uh, uh, not just the guy that made the gun, the people who owned it, the people who were affected by it. Um, uh, I've, I've some repurposed objects, for example, are, are some of my favorites to study. Uh, every now and then there are some clues on there that can tell you about who put it together. They may have found one thing, turned it into another, or used it as a part of something else. And you might be able to tell by the way they did their work where they were from. There might be certain little clues in there or, you know, why they were just a number of things. Uh, so anyway, to get back to my work, I like to take my understanding of this kind of thing and put it back into my own work just as you'd use any other technique. Let's set the scene. Let's set a new scene. Uh, we'll say it's, it's just a hot, hot. Did I say hot? It's hot, humid day. Um, real sticky in late summer sometime. And, uh, you've been walking through some swampy woods and gradually you're going to come to a place where the elevation starts to rise a bit. And eventually you're in a grassy opening and there's this huge, huge swarm of big dragonflies flying around like hundreds of them, big swarm. And the air is really thick and hazy. There are beams of light cutting through the trees. And if you, you, Ethan, you were to paint this scene, your painting is not going to be like just a painted version of a photograph of what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. You're going to use that painting to convey your impressions of that scene. Um, and not just what you're looking at. You're going to be conveying impressions of the heat, um, the haze, insects, the whole steaming mess. <laughs> yeah. And your painting is going to convey these things in a way that a photograph can't. Uh, all the things you're experiencing, you've taken it in as inspiration, and now you're going to create something new with it. To do it, you're going to use techniques you've learned, and you're going to use tools that you've learned how to use. You know, brushes, paint, different paper, so forth. But in the end, it's all about your creativity and what you're going to do with all of these things. So for me, building a rifle is, is quite similar. I approach it in quite a, a similar way, I guess. Okay. There's, there's absolutely an art to, to, to the, even the nuts and bolts part of building a long rifle. Um, you, you've got to study original work. You've got to learn how to use the tools. And you've got to develop techniques to use them to, to, to build a gun. But... For me personally, the real art comes in when you figure out um, you figure out ways to give a long rifle a life of its own. Mm -hmm. um, 
the scenarios that we've talked about uh, with the fossilized footprints and so forth, I know most people won't necessarily get the connection between those and gun buildings. So, so here it is. For me, when I get the chance to sit down with, let's say, an old uh, artistically made long rifle, for me, it's like walking into that grassy opening. Oh, okay. I, I get that first impression of it, what it physically is. And uh, I notice things that stand out as interesting or unusual, so I'm experiencing it. And going a bit deeper into it, like with the story about the music, I recognize that I'm, I'm an artist, and here I am holding the work of another artist who's long gone been gone a long, long time. And no matter how fancy or primitive this gun is, right now I'm witnessing that person's creative energy. I'm holding it in my hands, really. I mean, here it is. Yeah. And, 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 and like with the fossilized footprint story, when I'm looking at that old gun, what I really want to do is, is look back through time somehow and fill in those blanks, fill that void that's just asking for answers, you know, for, <laughs> uh, it, somebody made that gun and yeah. what was the person's life like, uh, and who carried it, you know, uh, how many people carried it? What are all those stories and, uh, all the scars and the rust and, and missing parts. What's that all about? So, uh, all those things, are my inspiration for building guns and each one has to be a, it has to be a gun first you know it's got to be a functional good shooting flintlock gun there's no doubt about that it just has to be uh, but artistically what i hope for is to make them into things that can evoke a reaction like a good painting would so the big trick is to figure out how to put all these things back into my own work Right. Yeah. How do you how do you compile all of that? Well, that's like the million dollar question. Okay. Um there's ways to to build a story into a gun, we'll say. You kind of make a path of clues. Um and you can certainly develop a concept for a for a build. Uh that, that would put, we'll say, a new perspective on things that are traditional. Um, it's, I mean, really, it's kind of endless. I could give you a, um, I could give you an example of one gun. Uh, well, well, just generally speaking, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I have the ability to forge. Uh, I don't have to just, uh, uh, deal with uh, cast parts or the things that any everybody else is using, not everybody else, but that a lot of other builders are using. I've got the ability to forge and fabricate some gun parts and shape stocks by hand. And, uh, you know, shapes, shapes are a huge part of creating the feel of, of a gun, just like you were doing a sculpture. Yeah. For so right from the ground up, I can start steering a gun in whatever artistic direction I want, like right from the ground up. Um, you, you can make things, uh, you know, different different shapes 
will create a different feel or a different mood, a different, uh, I guess, character is probably the word I'm after. You know, I've probably said personality once or twice, but really it's about character. Uh, you can make things, for example, massive or slender, uh, bulbous, angular, or any combination of all these things and create a different look and feel. So a lot of it's about your starting points and how you connect them with, with lines and curves. But that's, that's, that's huge, you know, being able to, uh, being able to shape all these things and having an understanding of how to put them together mm-hmm. uh, to create, uh, to create a very particular feel, a very particular look. Uh, so that along with uh, combinations of color, different things I do to create texture in the stock and on the metal. Uh, well, for example, you know, uh, something, well, a good example, I made a, a rifle recently that I called the Panther rifle. I think you, did you get to see that one? Yes. I got to see that at the CLA show this year. Okay. I couldn't remember cause it left the show a little bit early and I couldn't remember if you'd seen it or not. I know I'd sent you some photos while, uh, while I was working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're familiar with that one. Uh, there was a concept to start with. Uh, I'll try to condense this down without, I don't want to totally Wikipedia it, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I could go on for a whole hour just talking about this if somebody let me, but uh, the, this, this Panther rifle, the idea behind the Panther symbolism, uh, there are uh, old guns, several early American guns that had kind of an animal motif for carving. And sometimes it's a recognizable animal. Otherwise, other times it's kind of like a mythical beast or somewhere in between. And part of the idea for this started out uh, when I'd seen an original rifle by a, a, a gunsmith by the name of Christian Erger, who was a Moravian gunsmith. And one of his best known rifles is uh, people call it the Griffin gun. The carving behind the cheek piece mm-hmm. uh, was a Griffin, and I'm trying to remember the material he, material he used. But the claws of the Griffin and probably the beak too were either ivory or bone uh, inlay, small inlay, and that of course you can trace that kind of work back to your earlier European guns where they would use stag or ivory inlay for making, uh, you know, like tusks on a wild boar or teeth, eyes in an animal, you know, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily anything new when he did it, but it, it was his take on it. So I w- that was a small part of my inspiration was uh, the, the, the claws in that beak. Um, I took the panther animal as the animal motif to carve on this gun uh, in the in the earlier days of uh, you know white settlement in this country, there were mountain lions were, were pretty widespread and they were a force to be reckoned with. And uh, you know the people who'd been here before, uh, some of them actually worshipped the panther. And either way, you know, with the the, the, the European settlers, whether you feared it or re, or uh, worshipped it, there was a great deal of respect mm-hmm. <laughs> for this this animal. They were something to contend with. And uh, so 
I had in mind to use this, uh, this Panther's motif, a carving motif behind the cheek piece of this gun. I thought, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be neat? I do all iron mounted guns. I, you know, very little brass on them, unless it's supposed to represent a reused part. I do forged iron butt plates, trigger guards, uh, small parts are usually iron. I thought, wouldn't it be neat to do iron, uh, claws, teeth, fangs, and, and eyes on this panther? and have the stock fairly dark, and uh, particularly where this carving is gonna run from behind the cheek piece through the cheek piece, and, and have the, the, the stock very dark with just the gleaming of the tops of those iron claws and teeth and eyes showing, uh, almost as if that would be like the last thing you'd see <laughs> coming through the dark woods at you. Yeah. Then I started thinking, boy, it would be neat to somehow represent some some mist and some foliage, some trees uh, that would conceal parts of this animal's body, you know? And uh, so I incorporated the mist into the carving by using some silver wire inlay. And I, uh, I arranged oh, parts of the, just some parts of the panther's body are visible and others sort of blend with sort of carved, Rococo style representation of foliage, I guess. So sort of, sort of similar to when you would see a deer or an animal in the woods and you're only seeing a little piece of it here and there, yeah. especially in light. I wanted to try to do sort of an artistic representation of that. So that was the carving and that sort of set the mood for the whole rest of the rifle. Um, you know, parts of it were a little bit angular and slender uh, I, I wanted to give it sort of an air of, uh, of, you know, if you think of a big cat like that, I wanted to give the whole piece sort of like a, an air of dignity in a way, but also kind of adding some sort of angular shapes in there and very dark tones, dark colors, uh, gave it sort of a menacing feel at the same time. Mm -hmm. and, and it was, uh, you know, remembering what it looked like, it was yeah. neat how it was. I mean, it, it wasn't, like you say, it wasn't a photograph, but I got the feeling of like a panther in the woods, like it was watching me. You know, it's that kind of thing in, in art where oh, it, the cool. eyes are kind of following you as you're looking around it. And like you can you can look at the other parts of that of that gun, but you're always kind of in the corner of your eye are those bright eyes looking at you. And that was just yeah. an, a neat part of that piece. Oh, that's great, man. That's exactly what I was you know, the, the kind of thing I was hoping that, that, uh, that people would see in it. And it's, it's funny, you know, I built these, uh, I'm building these things for one person, you know, for mm -hmm. customer, but at the same time, other people are going to see it, especially if it shows up online somewhere, or if I can borrow it to take to a show. So it's also going to be viewed by, you know, quite a few people sometimes. So I, I just, that, that's neat that you saw that in it, it really is. Well, good. And there's, uh, um, as far as fleshing out the rest of the gun, um, there were some of the parts were supposed to represent like the lock and the side plate. And I think, yeah, the ramrod pipes on it were supposed to represent parts that would have been reused from a, uh, an English trade gun, probably around 1760 to 1770. So there was a wrecked gun or some salvaged parts that who knows, maybe the customer would have had them. It might've been a gun that 
that belonged to a relative or uh, was somehow important to him that he wanted to reuse those parts or possibly the gunsmith had them on hand, mm-hmm. you know, from a, a salvaged gun uh, and and offered them up. Um, and uh, there was also a, a uh, kind of a bizarre, not bizarre, but an unusual brass wrist repair on it, which, of course, tells you the thing was used hard. It, it was a decorated gun, but it wasn't just wasn't just all looks. The thing was was used for its intended purpose and, and, and used hard. So, yeah. Um, so you can, as part of the concept for this thing, you can sort of build a history into it and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, also, you know, when I was talking a little bit ago about sort of building a, a trail, a path of clues, uh, that's so fun to do. You know, anybody who's studied the little gun, uh, the guns a little bit, um, I like to try to leave sort of a trail of clues and sometimes they lead to a, a very pointed answer. And other times <laughs> it might lead some people astray. You right. Know? Yeah. You can't, uh, uh, as the artist, you can't, you can suggest things to people, but you can never really, you know, unless you go up and just beat them over the head, you know, you're there with them. You can't really tell them what you want to say with it. Yeah. I don't think. That, yeah. Well, I don't think you should, Yeah, you know, You've got to, you've got to allow, that's, that's the fun of it, you yeah. know, um, it is, is, is allowing uh, for, for people to experience what you've done. You know, you've taken your interpretations and put them into this work and now they're, they're looking at it and they've got their, their explanations about what they might be looking at or, you know, anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's what all that's about. So do you feel that you've always um, built guns and created the art for them in that manner? Or is that something that took you, um, you know, some period of time to figure out and refine? I I really think that when I was first getting started, I was just trying to build a gun. I mean, I've always kind of had artistic leanings my whole life, Mm -hmm. but... um, I'll say that the first few that I built, I probably tried to put my own twist on certain details. Uh, whether it was successful or not, it's not important, but I didn't really, it took me a while before I was really trying to come up with a concept for a rifle or uh, get this in depth, you know? Yeah. It, took, yeah, it did take quite a long time. But I, I can't imagine... Uh, building building anything without without doing this you know without doing it this way i wouldn't want you to (laughs) i I really like what you you, what you put out so don't don't change a thing (laughs) (laughs) coming from one non-customer to you (laughs) there's a lot of weight behind that statement (laughs) well okay (laughs) I'll, i'll make a note of it do you ever get, um, you know, artistically kind of drained or worn out? Um, yes. Because you're, you're, you're definitely not, I mean, I mean, everybody does, but, um, you know, it's not like you are, are turning out a bunch of the same kind of, of gun or, or anything like that. You know, each one that you do is, is pretty different and pretty unique. Is that, is that safe to say? Yes. Yeah. I don't like to repeat much of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are uh, 
there are times, yes, when, when I do feel kind of drained, but you can't stop working, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, when I sense that's coming on, I, I try to work on something that's not going to wipe me out as much. Uh, uh, the last gun that I worked on that was particularly taxing in that respect, I had to set it aside for several weeks at a time, probably three times while I was working on it. Um, cause it's just a fact, you know, it's, it's, uh, it happens. And sometimes, sometimes you can just go through the whole thing. I think, uh, you know, you, you know, from start to finish without stopping, I can do that. Uh, and those are the ones where I've got like a, just a super clear vision from the, from the very beginning. And that's not to say that we don't shift gears in the middle somewhere, you know, yeah. but got a very clear vision down to some, you know, final details of, of what I want, uh, that thing to be. And, uh, those, you know, typically I just work on through, but occasionally if I'm doing a lot of experimenting, um, like with this last rifle, uh, you know, there usually comes a point where I've got to set it down. I'll get stuck on something sometimes and have to set it down. And, you know, sometimes later that afternoon, I'm picking it back up. Other times it takes a week or two before I can, mm -hmm. but yeah, there's always, there's always something else to work on though. I've got a big backlog of big backlog of ideas that I'll, I'll just never get to <laughs> seriously. Nobody had lived that long enough. I've got big notebooks full of, of course, I don't look at them very often. I may hate most of them by now. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of shifts and ebbs and flows. Yes. Yeah, and you hope it would, yeah. you know. That's what you hope for, to, for your stuff to kind of evolve. I mean, you know, you might be listening to this a year from now and saying, man, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Why was I doing things that way? But, and I hope I do. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I really like about, um, you know, talking with different builders and different artists, I mean, really in any medium. But uh, I think muzzleloading especially is really interesting because there's so many different avenues for artists to work in inside muzzleloading. You know, yes. like your wife does a lot of pouches and, and really beautiful leather work. And, uh, you know, I enjoy kind of dabbling in all of it just because I'm, I'm not really good at any of it. <laughs> but there's... Uh, <laughs> There's so much inspiration. Well, man, you're in just there. getting started. Yeah, though. that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> you know, there's very few that just. I don't mean to interrupt you with no, this, but good. there's very very few that you're just kicking ass right out of the gate. You know, I mean, it takes a while. There's a lot to learn. But uh, so yeah. so on that note, what would you, what would you uh, advice would you hand down from the hill that you're sitting on? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, well, do you have the cassette tape? Can we make some copies and start mailing to people and see if we can get some? That's not going to help anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it almost ruined my life. In fact, my advice is don't listen to anybody's advice, especially mine. Okay. No, that's no, that in I'm, itself is. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I, I and, think for, for anybody with kind of, a, we'll say, a creative bent, don't don't neglect studying the past don't just you know go full steam ahead mm -hmm. you know buy yourself a a kit gun and build it and another one and then start building and building find out where it started at least uh you know i mean that, that goes back to what we were talking about about studying the history of it you know uh it's like with any with any art the classics are classics for a reason 
you don't have to oh what was that that i told you at the cla show i wanted to have it made into a t-shirt and i free something about uh being steeped in tradition without being mired in it mm, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh bumper sticker right there anyway uh um yeah I mean, well, like you were saying, there there are so many different, even with gun, just gun building. I know you were talking about, you know, Mary Ellen and others doing leather work, horn work, et cetera. But even with gun building alone, there are so many ways to approach this, so many different ways to do this. Uh, and they're all good for, for, for what they are. They're all good. Um, uh, anybody who's not been to the CLA show who could get there, uh, that is a living, breathing example of what we're talking about there. There's uh, you walk around for 10 minutes and you'll see a hundred different ways to do things. Uh, if you can, ever, if you can ever get to that show, go. It's usually middle of August annually, Lexington, Kentucky. So check it out. It's worth going. Pile, pile a bunch of your buddies into the car, make, you know, nice, make a nice road trip from anywhere. Yeah. But, uh, um, that uh, that but that it, show this year was so um, energizing. I think for for me and, and even my wife tagging along with me of just seeing so like you say so many different ways to do things and so many nice people wanting to talk about what they're doing and and share that. I mean, we talk about kind of the human connection and all of this, and going to a show like that in any show really, and and trying to talk to the people there about what they're doing. Um, I think it really gets you amped up to go try and make something and you can kind of pull those connections and stories that you heard from them into the next thing that you work on and just kind of keeps that ball rolling. You always come away from an event like that with new influences and and ideas. Yeah. And feeling, feeling energized. It's great talking with people that, uh, uh, about what they're working on. I Mm -hmm. always, always, that you know it's cool to see it's i mean it's really cool to see what they've made you know people typically will try to have something new at the, at the show and you get to see you know the most recent thing that's been on their on their bench and in their mind for for however long leading up to the show mm-hmm. but you know talking about where they're going what's next um you know and that's that's something else there too ethan is that the, to me the, the the flintlock is still evolving I mean, there's this, mm-hmm. yeah. There's this rumor. There's this rumor that it kind of evolved into the breech loading gun, and it died. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's 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 linear thinking. That's ridiculous. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, so much of this, you know, a lot of people say that I love muzzling is a little too beginner focused, but there's a lot of beginners out there right now um, that don't know you know, really where to go and, and where to turn. And I, and I think it's important to, like you say, it, the flintlock didn't just stop. It continued. Yeah. It just branched out. You know, you can call the main line of firearms history. You know, if you want to call that a straight line, that's fine. But there's a ton of branches over here that muzzleloaders and then flintlock, you know, everything just branched out from. And there's a lot there to unpack because that history didn't stop in, you know, when the percussion cap was invented, the flintlock didn't stop. It was still there. And I think that, that to me adds so much 
enthusiasm. I'm getting kind of excited, but about muzzleloaders, <laughs> because you you had the invention of the cartridge gun and repeating arms and smokeless powder and all this stuff that made firearms more efficient and better and faster. But you still had a ton of people hold on to their muzzleloaders. And they didn't throw them away. They didn't burn them. They didn't junk them out. We can go and hold on to a muzzleloader that somebody preserved through 400 years of technology because they, for some reason, said, we need to hold on to this. And that's the part that just gives me goosebumps. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's still there. Yeah. Still evolving. I mean, definitely artistically, you know. Definitely. Yeah. there's there's always builders that are who, who are uh, just constantly pushing the envelope, you know, pushing pushing the art ahead. It, its role has changed, that's for sure. It's mm-hmm. not needed, you know, but but it's still absolutely useful. I mean, uh, I, I hunt for food. I enjoy hunting, but I hunt. We eat everything that I kill, mm-hmm. and that's what I use is flintlock guns, and. Uh, they work, <laughs> you know, yeah. they work well. Um, uh, you know, yes, it's a, uh, well, th- look at the mechanism itself. Uh, the, the, I'm talking specifically the lock uh, with CNC kind of entering the picture in recent years. Uh, the, the, the mechanism itself has evolved in that respect. You know, the advances that Jim Kibler has made, and, and, and others who've sort of followed suit are, are, uh, are, are making, you know, top quality locks accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's a huge step, you know, uh, there's, I mean, there's been, there's been some great quality locks on the market for people who are buying, uh, commercial locks, uh, for, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this, this is a huge advance, you know? Yeah. And so, it, you know, it's continue, continuing to evolve in, in uh, more ways than one. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. I've got my Thor Bullets here, and I'm just going to pop three of them out just to make them a little easier to access. Now, the thing to remember about the Thor Bullets is while they are sized to your bore for a more accurate shot every time, a lot of like what we see with, you know, all the full bore lead conicals and modern centerfire bullets, you do need to pick up this sizing pack before you order a full pack. For right around four or five bucks, Thor is gonna send you four different bullets of four different sizes, all indicated for what size they are. And you're gonna test each of them in your muzzleloader so that you know that you're getting the right bullet that fits your bore. Mine was the straight 50 for the CVA Acura LRV2. A lot of people say the Acura bores are a little bit undersized. So make sure that you're getting that sizing pack and start at the bottom and work your way up depending on your bore, regardless of what muzzle you have. If you do have a tight bore where none of those in the sizing pack fit your bore, give Thor Bullets a call or an email and uh, reach out to them. They'll see how they can help you find the right bullet for your muzzleloader. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. Can you give share some details about your personal hunting rifle? Uh, I've got a, uh, a 60 caliber 
60 caliber rifle. It's fairly plain. Um, no butt plate on it. No side plate muzzle cap. I did paint the stock when I was trying to. I was trying out some ideas before committing them to a customer's gun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I uh, wasn't going to keep it, but it's kind of stuck. You know. <laughs> but I, I, the, it's uh it's 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 a great gun i just enjoy, i enjoy shooting all of them but this one i've gotten really attached to i don't take it to any shows because somebody will want to buy it hmm. you know part of part of being a gun maker is you've got to take the oath of poverty and uh when somebody waves cash in front of your face you, you know gotta it's take hard it. to, yeah. yeah so that one stays at home i don't take it anywhere <laughs> um yeah, I've gotten really attached to it, killed quite a few deer with it already. The first couple of times I hunted with it, it was just here at home. And, well, not in the house. We have, you know, woods. And uh, I had, uh, let's see, the lock and barrel were in and the trigger. And I think I had the butt end roughly shaped out, but the forearm was still square. No trigger guard made for it yet. No stain, obviously, mm -hmm. anything, but I took it out and hunted with it and killed a deer with it the first time I went out. And uh, it took me four years before I had it actually shaped out and stained and finished. And I was hunting with it every year and shooting with it. That stock was so greasy, I didn't think it was going to take any stain. <laughs> I, you know, bear oil and whatever else I'd been using, deer fat, uh -huh. anything for, you know, just gets all over everything. Oh, yeah. And I kind of soaked it pretty good with with lacquer thinner a couple of times and hit it with the nitric acid stain and it took <laughs> but uh yeah i hunted with it kind of square for a couple years in a row finally got it together um but yeah i've got that and then i have a 32 caliber uh, uh squirrel rifle i've got a nice property just down the road from here uh last year the the owner offered told me that I could go there and squirrel hunt. And I was so busy. I just couldn't make time for it. Not even once, but he's got big woods, like 265 acres and uh, plenty of places over there to kill squirrels. Mm -hmm. So I am definitely going this year. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. I've had, I've had a couple others over the years and always sold them, but these two, I'm just, like I said, don't take them anywhere, hanging on to them. Yeah. Hey, you've got, uh, Let's see, you've got that Kibler kit that's, what, a forty caliber that pops up every now and then yep. on Instagram? Yep. I'm getting ready yeah. to get it back out. Probably not this weekend, but maybe next weekend. The weather's, I think we talked about some, the weather's turned around here. And uh, I don't know when squirrel season enters for Indiana, but there's been some fox squirrels really barking at me a little too close to the house. So I might have to uh, <laughs> let them uh, be a part of the story for that flintlock there. <laughs> there you go. Do you, do you go, uh, do you shoot many matches? I don't, I don't much anymore. I'd like to shoot some more. Um, I shot a lot when I was a kid. That was kind of our sport growing up was, uh, was muzzleloader matches. And, yeah. um, I mean, my, both, both of my fam, my mother's side, my father's side, you know, a little bit of the story of that goes into my stuff, I guess we're, we're pretty hardcore muzzleloading, um, match competitors so we have several more modern um, muzzleloading match guns not necessarily like the modern inline stuff but kind of the hybridization i mean we have a couple of modern uh, match pistols that have flint locks and things you know that are a real hybridization of that so that's a lot of the influence for me is trying to see what we can do 
in modern times, you know, like you talk about with the, the evolution and the changing of it all, um, that's really kind of runs in my blood of, of yeah. muzzleloading is how can we make this faster? How can we make this, you know, a little more efficient every now and then? But right. um, improve on it. Yeah. But the simplicity of it and, and recognizing, you know, the, it's something I talk about a lot, but the, how, you know, in the 1700s, the 1800s, how they were able to engineer and design these things to work so efficiently. I mean, the flintlock was the gun lock for like 200 years, um, yep. you know, in its heyday where it was the main thing. And if you look at firearms history, we still don't have that in the modern day. We don't have that for centerfire yet. It's not been around long enough. Um, yeah. You're getting there, but, um, you know, n- not yet. And. I guess I don't really know where I was going with that, but, um, <laughs> man, it was sounding great. Was it sounding good? Okay. <laughs> you see here and I'm standing up, but it's, I, I guess to kind of tie it back to what we've been talking about is that, you know, you have this branch of muzzleloading that it, it never stopped and it, it continued to go. And, and by being involved with it and like yourself recreating this stuff and, and me learning and starting to learn how to recreate it, I feel like I'm connected both to other artists like you, other shooters, you know, people that just like to shoot, going out yeah. and connecting with them, and then with our ancestors that went through all of this. And, you know, everybody, I think, <clears throat> just about everybody here in the United States can trace their lineage back to somebody that used a muzzleloader. And yeah. even if you just start out with a, a modern kit gun or, you know, one of the clunky kind of Thompson Center kind of guns that people think about, you're still connecting to a great, 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 great grandparent that carried a muzzleloader and relied on that muzzleloader so that you could be here today. And that keeps, you know, I'm, I'm very connected to the people in recent history in my family, but I know that just a hop, skip and a jump, I can connect with a whole lot of other people and their ancestors as well that make us all, yeah. you know, muzzleloading enthusiasts. And, you know, for here in the States, Americans, I think, you know, not to, not to get kind of, you know, flag wavy about it, but, um, no, there's a huge tradition. Yeah, there. yeah, there's a and, huge tradition know, there to connect to. Yeah, it's really energizing. It, it, it match shooting itself, I mean, goes way, way back. I, it was very, very popular thing. I've heard. I've, I've never found out whether it's true or not, but I've heard a lot of people say that up until the invention of baseball, it was the most popular American pastime. I will fight and die on that hill. That match competitive shooting is the American sport. You will not convince me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. And you know what they shot? They shot muzzleloaders first. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, the one, the one club that I used to shoot at up in uh, Canal Fulton, Ohio, mm-hmm. they had traced their their uh, roots of that organization back to 1815, if I'm if I'm remembering right. Um, and uh, you know, had some had some documentation about some of the early matches. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, Oh yeah. Speaking of up there, that's when I met your dad. I doubt if he'd remember me, but Mike, uh, around that time I was thinking of, uh, uh, I've never been a, a black powder pistol shooter. Mm-hmm. I've shot them, but just not my thing, you know, yeah. but I was, I was, I was doing pretty well shooting rifle and it's like, yeah, I'm going to branch out a little bit. And right around that time, I think he showed up at their big fourth of July match. It's like, nah, I ain't doing this. <laughs> Watched him shoot for about five seconds. Like oh, I'm out. Yeah, you gotta. That's something that I, I love. Um, but I have to be in that like headspace, you know, to yeah, and like, 
practicing even just, you know, a few weeks ahead of time to get into that zone because boy, especially if you're shooting in like a, a serious competition, you have to be on it and you have to be in a, a headspace. I think that you don't have to be, if like you're just shooting with friends, <laughs> I mean, you want to hit the target, <laughs> but if you're trying to yeah. hit like a dime at, at 25 yards, you know, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. Yeah. And every time, not just once yeah. by accident, <laughs> 10 times and then yeah. across 10 targets. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of fun. I miss, I, I haven't been to matches in a long time. I used to, used to go all the time, you know, mm -hmm. almost every weekend for a while there, but, um, yeah, just building took over. Things got out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we can, uh, we can get some matches going. Maybe we can get some of us, uh, kind of muzzleting goobers. We can call it them muzzleting goobers club. <laughs> and <laughs> There's another t-shirt. We, we can, uh, we can get together and, and talk about how we're all connected through the, the fungal nature that is the human experience and <laughs> in, in between relays or something. <laughs> I don't want to take up too much of your time, Ian. Uh, I know you've got, you know, you got a lot of work to do, but is there anything else that you'd like to, you know, to touch on while we're, while we're talking here? But cl classes can be a good fit for some people. They're usually around a, a, a week long. Sometimes they're a little shorter or longer, but they're usually around a week long. And I just got home a few days ago from teaching a, a kit building class, which was the first time I'd done that. Uh, most of the classes I've taught have been building from a blank, kind of from scratch. But, uh, this was a kit building class at Wind Change Flintlocks in North Carolina. I did the class with my new friends, Ed Wenger and Joe Scorsona. But, uh, well, you would have to contact uh, Jim Chambers Flintlocks for info on future classes. Uh, I think their website is jimchambersflintlocks.com, but don't quote me on it. My friend, uh, Ken Gahagan and I, Ken's a gun maker. Uh, he and I teach a class every winter in Jackson, Ohio, at a place called Canner's Cave, and that is building from a blank. Uh, it's good if you have a little bit of experience with that. Occasionally, we'll take on a beginner. We also do a youth scholarship every year that's sponsored by the Kentucky Rifle Association and uh, Jason Gatliff at Muzzleloader Magnet. You can find out about that at the website. Uh, which is Southern Ohio Artisan Workshops.com. And a couple other good classes are at uh, Cabin Creek Muzzle Loading in Helen, Pennsylvania. And Jim Parker teaches a gun making class in Warrior, Alabama. He does that several times a year. So classes can be a good fit for, for some people. Uh, if you're just going to try to get started on your own, there are plenty of books out there to me the one that i always recommend to people uh for getting started is the art of building the pennsylvania long rifle by chuck dixon it's a spiral bound book and uh you can get it oh it probably dixie gunworks log cabin shop a lot of the suppliers sell it uh you can get it from dixon's uh dixon's muzzle loading out in pennsylvania of course but that'll uh, there's two sections in the book. It, it will uh, describe how to build one from a blank and also uh, starting with a pre-carved stock or a kit. So that's the book I always recommend for people getting started. Uh, other than classes and books, uh, there's plenty of videos available. American Pioneer Video has a pile of, of uh, gun making and uh, related videos. I know Jim Kibler has lots of videos online on YouTube, 
that uh, uh, you know are kind of directly related to his, his uh, kits, to building his kits, but there's going to be great information on there for anybody who's getting started. And as far as reference material, probably the best uh, reference material for somebody getting started uh, or somebody who's been building for a while is put out by the Kentucky Rifle Foundation. Uh, they have a series of discs, so you'll have to have something that will play a disc and a monitor, uh, but they have a series of discs, uh, lots and lots of photos of, of uh, old long rifles and photos. It's excellent photography, and they're from angles that are useful to gun builders. You see the overall profile of the gun. You see details. The photography is good enough that you can zoom in and check out engraving cuts and small details. Uh, so that's the Kentucky Rifle Foundation. They have a website that you can go to. Um, and the last thing I guess is when, if you're getting started, do not be afraid to contact established builders with any of your questions. I know on a lot of on a lot of Ethan's podcasts, you'll hear people who he talks to that are shooters. They're into living history, and. You know, it doesn't take you long listening to them. You pretty much recognize anybody into this kind of stuff wants to see new people do well and they want to help. So don't be afraid about contacting established builders and asking questions. If the first one can't answer your questions, likely they're going to steer you towards somebody who will. And if you want to check out a little bit of my work, you can look on Instagram at iPrat360. Ian doesn't post often, but when he does, it's beautiful work. Uh, it's one of my favorite pages. Well, thank you. I'd like to thank Ian again for coming on the show. Uh, for me, it was really interesting and really inspiring conversation that got me back into the shop and back into my sketchbook, kind of thinking and, and working through some ideas and trying to formulate them and produce them into the kind of muzzleloading space here. I really can't thank Ian enough. If you want to check out Ian's work, we'll have links in the show notes below. Uh, and also, you know, Ian kind of talked about classes, but um, if you want to learn, you know, and maybe learn from Ian someday, he does several classes with the Southern Ohio Artisans Workshop, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. That's not sponsored in any way. Uh, that program is just doing a great job of of educating new and, and people enthusiastic about muzzleloading. Uh, really training them from some contemporary masters is a great opportunity for you to check out. Autumn is a busy time for muzzleloaders, and I love muzzleloading. If you want to see some just different muzzleloading action, if you enjoy the podcast and want to see some more muzzleloading stuff, check out ilovemuzzleloading.com. We have a ton of videos and other interviews on the podcast. As we head into fall and winter, we got the muzzleloaders back out and doing some more shooting, some experiments, some fun shooting. And uh, later this fall, I'm working on scheduling, you know, kind of tagging along with several friends who hunt with their muzzleloaders to try to share some of their stories and uh, and may hopefully capture some kind of a big buck. Uh, that's what they're always going for, but um, we'll have to see if, if we can bring in, bring, in a, bring in a big bruiser for them. I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. If you want to learn more about this, Ian's work, or anything else related to muzzleloading, please check out ilovemuzzleloading.com. This is a passion project. I don't make any money off of any of this stuff. We're not charging for anything. Um, it's really just about sharing 
our love of muzzleloading here at I Love Muzzleloading with all of you. And, and hopefully you're enjoying it. And uh, hopefully you're learning a little bit about some contemporary masters in the, in the muzzleloading community. And, uh, you know, maybe share, maybe share it with a friend, share your enthusiasm about muzzleloading, and we can keep this great hobby going for a few more generations here. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.